Hey, Beacon family, this is Deacon Arthur. You are tuning in to Denver Beacon Sermon Podcast. A note for the listeners, this week's audio quality has experienced some interference. We do truly thank you for your understanding. And I just want to remind you to be the light, Denver. Thank you for tuning in. this morning. Amen. How about y'all? You may be seated, Beacon. Good morning. It's so good to see you. My name is Pastor Rob. I'm honored to be one of the pastors of this church alongside Pastor CB. As my beautiful wife already mentioned, I am so glad for him to be on his sabbatical the very first Sunday of it this morning. And I am so grateful that we have a pastor trust the Lord enough to rest in Him, to get the rest that every pastor honestly so desperately needs uh, season to season. What a good man he is. And I am also blessed and honored to get to be the one to stand in His place this morning and to get to be God's vessel of His Word to you today. So please join me in prayer before we dig in. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, God, we come before you this morning so humble and so grateful just to get the chance to communicate, to get to be with you, Lord. That's simply enough. Anything else is icing on the cake. And God, we sense your presence in this place this morning. God, it's so almost powerful that we know that you are here with us. God, and so we invite you to have your way. God, we need you desperately in so many different ways, each and every one of us uniquely this morning. We know that you are more than enough, God, to satisfy our souls. So would you do that now through the preaching of your word? Speak to us, Lord, for your servants to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is entitled, Your Worst Fear. I don't know if you all know this about me or not. I know some of you do. But for the last couple of years, I've been, uh, I've been battling insomnia pretty badly. Now, some nights I sleep okay. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out how this pulpit is supposed to be. It's like, I understand why it's TV's pet peeve now. Yeah, that looks, that looks good. Sorry. Uh, you know, sometimes I sleep okay, but let me tell you what I mean by okay. My okay is like, you're horrible. And some nights are even worse than that. Now, most days I push through the fatigue just fine. But some days, it gets to me. I can be a little grumpy, all right? And I hate that. I do. I hate it. Especially when it bleeds into my relationship especially when it results in something like impatience with one of my kids. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a good dad, and I know that. I mean that. I, you know, I know that. It's true. Uh, in fact, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you too, guys. But, yeah, that's right. We all have our moments. That's true. There's grace upon grace. But, you know, part of the reason I'm so hard on myself for that, in that area in particular, is because I love my kids so much, right? You know, the last thing I ever want to do or say is anything anything at all that would repel them from Jesus, even a bit of my impatience. But you know, I had another one of these days again recently. And in the aftermath of it, I'll be honest with you, I felt pretty defeated. I was like, wow, better than this. Come on, man. And as I continued to beat myself up like that, I had the thought, God must be so disappointed. You want to hear ever have that thought? It doesn't feel very good, does it? 
And as I, as I continued to meditate on that, it began to color everything. Pretty soon I felt downright depressed, overwhelmed by feelings of guilt and shame. You know, around that time, the enemy chimed in. You know how the devil just loves to kick you when you're already down, don't you? And the impression on my spirit was something to the effect of, isn't, um, isn't patience like a, like a fruit of the spirit? And, and, wait a minute, aren't you the, the pastor of, of spiritual formation? Oh, that's, that's right, I knew I knew you from somewhere. How interesting. Now, about this time, you know, I was ready to throw in the towel, okay? Like, I felt about the spiritual equivalent of one of those boxing matches that you're, you're seeing on TV. It's just, it's just not a fair fight, right? Like, you're getting anxious for the ref to throw in the towel because if he does it, you're worried this guy's going to die right before your eyes. Anyone else here ever have a day like that before that feels like anything but victory? Where no matter how much truth you may know up here in your head, it's just not doing anything down here in your heart, in your experience, right? Some of us have had entire seasons like this. Where we felt defeated, discouraged, depleted, downtrodden, exhausted, fatigued, burnt out, whatever it may be. If that's you, if that's where you're coming from today, if that's where you are right now, maybe that's where you're headed in the next season and you don't even know it yet. But this sermon is for you. On the day that I was telling you about, the devil, he really got in my head. <laughs> like, I was already planning my ministry retirement speech, y'all. And I was like, hey, it's, it's been a good run, guys, almost a year. You know, maybe that's a record, I don't know, like, shortest pastoral ministry career ever. But uh, I really appreciate your support. I just can't do it anymore. <laughs> but thankfully, before I did, I had the presence of mind to reach out and grab my Bible. And I rediscovered there all over again why it is called the Sword of the Spirit. Because I found there all that I needed to keep fighting the good fight of the faith. And I'd like to share that with you this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the letter of 1 John. 1 John, it's near the very end of your Bible. You've got 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and then Revelation. So it's almost at the end. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Beginning in the middle of verse 16, the Apostle John wrote, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears is not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen can't love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John wrote this letter to members of his own flock who were struggling by oppression under attack from another group of people who were trying to cast doubt on the gospel, and thus on the identity of God and the very identity of they as God's people. And in so doing, they were participating in the strategy of Satan, which is always, always to prey upon our worst fear, which is fear of 
rejection by God. Did you know that was your worst fear? Did you know that? It is, I'll prove it to you. Because I've yet to meet a single believer, even one Christian, who doesn't at least get a little chill up their spine when they hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, speaking of the day of judgment, he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's terrifying, right? Right? I mean, let's be real. That's terrifying. Will we cast out demons in your name? We did many mighty works in your name. How does one overcome such a fear as this? What's the solution? Well, wouldn't you know it? It's right there in the text. Jesus sends these people away because they didn't know each other. There was no real relationship. Therefore, the solution is to know him, to know him, which is right where John begins with the truth about God. The truth about God, which I must clarify, is not the same as having a relationship with God. Knowing about him and knowing him are two different things, but the former is a very essential and necessary precursor to the latter, for we cannot know God we don't have the right information about him. Amen? And so John begins, and the very first thing he tells us about God is God is love. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. 20th century pastor and author A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. And it's so true, right? Because not only does it mean heaven or hell, it means so much for how we live in the here and now. It means everything, really. For we all, every single one of us, live at the mercy of our beliefs, don't we? And so if we believe that God is like an all-accepting grandpa who's happy just to see us from time to time, maybe a holiday, a birthday here and there, give us a lollipop and send us on our way, then we'll likely not take sin seriously enough. And before long, our lives will reap the seeds of destruction. Conversely, if we believe that God is like a divine policeman, always watching, waiting for us to just screw it up so he can slap on the cuffs and throw us in the slammer, then we'll likely live lives marked by hiding from God, either in rebellion or religion. Full disclosure here, y'all, confession to you. Uh, I often take the long way home uh, to my house because on the strollway there's usually cops waiting to catch people in a speed trap. <laughs> Not that I'm speeding, okay? You know, just playing it safe. You can never be too safe, right? <laughs> but the times in my life that I have been pulled over, I mean, I am contrite and polite, y'all. What, what seems to be the problem here, officer? Oh, I see, I see. I'm so sorry, sir. Yes, sir, whatever you need to do. We totally do this with God, too, don't we? Don't we? But here's the thing. If <laughs> neither of these caricatures is true about him, Neither of those characters is God. And so if we spend our lives trying to interact with him in this way, we'll never know a true relationship with him. You know, as a father myself, I cannot stand the thought that there wouldn't be anything my kids would think or feel they could bring to me and that we wouldn't face together in full solidarity. And so John, writing from that same heart, says, God is 
first thing you need to know. It is the most important thing to know about him. He absolutely cares how we live. It's not enough for him to merely see you on a special occasion, a holiday, a birthday, here or there, give you a lollipop and send you on your way. He wants to be a part of it all. Every single moment, every day, every hour, every single thing in your life he wants in. Isn't that amazing? And yet, he's not a divine policeman. He's not waiting for you to screw In fact, no one is more for you. No one in all of existence is more for you than he is. There isn't anything you can't bring to him, that you can't come to him with, and be expect to be met with anything short of complete compassion, mercy, grace, and love. It, love is, is something of a junk drawer word in our day, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we say, I love you to each other, but we also say, we love tacos. <laughs> and we love the Broncos. Do we love them the same way? <laughs> right? Amen. <laughs> Amen. So if we're paying careful attention, then we'll be forced to observe that our culture seems to understand love primarily in terms of consumption, of consuming, devouring. Perhaps we even do these two at the same time, devour some tacos while we consume a Broncos game, right? But God says, John says, rather, that God defines love. God defines love. And he emphasizes that all throughout this very short letter of 1 John. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. In 3.16, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In 4.10, he says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. And in 4.16, leading into our passage today, He says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. While the world may define love in terms of consumption, God defines love in terms of being consumed for another's sake. Amen? Now when we sin, our shame and the devil will tempt us to believe that, that God is stingy with His love. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, for God, love isn't something that He possesses to be measured out. It's who He is. It's His very nature, His essence. God is love, and God is infinite. Therefore, there is no limit to His capacity to love. We simply cannot exhaust it. That's the truth. And the proof is the cross. Tell me, when did Jesus die for you? Was it before or after you repented and placed your faith in him? It was before, right? Yeah, well before, that's right. That means that from the throne of heaven, God looked forward ahead to your life before it ever began and seen in advance every sin that you would ever commit, every single one. Yes chose to die. Even if you'd been the only one that had just been you in need of saving, you still would have chosen to do it for you. You don't have to take my word for this. You can take his. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that God 
chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Wow. You see, even before God was your creator, he was already the redeemer. And that's because he is love. Yes, he is sovereign. Yes, he is omnipotent. But before he ever ruled over a thing, before he ever created a single thing, he was eternally existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, a perfect community of love. Therefore, it is his love that informs his sovereignty, and not the other way around. Thus, it was in love that he looked ahead to you and your life and called you by name before you ever breathed your first. Thus, it was in love that he exercised his great creative power and cast into being a world and a life for you that would be exactly what you would need to come to a saving faith in his Son. God is love. He loves you. And you can't outsend his love. And that's not just my opinion, no. It's not. That's Jesus. Two scenes from the Gospels come to mind here. First, the Samaritan woman that Jesus met by the well. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this story or not, but this woman's a hot mess, y'all, okay? I mean, she is. She's got a past and she's got a present. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches either. I mean, he calls her out on it, y'all. But he does so in such a way does so in such a way that the end result of that conversation is her running into town and telling everybody she can find that I found a man who can tell me everything about myself. You've got to come and meet him. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine having a conversation with anyone in which they start talking about <laughs> all the stuff you would never want to talk about with anyone? Like everything about you? A conversation in which anyone would tell you everything about yourself? end result of that conversation is such that you are overjoyed? I mean, wow! Doesn't that tell you so much about Jesus? So much about God and how he sees you, even in your sin. The second is the woman caught in adultery, a story from the Gospel of John. Those of you familiar with the story, you know that some of the Pharisees stand ready to stone the woman to death whom they claim to have caught in the act of adultery. And if it wasn't for Jesus' intervention, they probably would have, but Jesus does intervene and challenges these Pharisees. He says, But he who is among you without sin, throw the first stone. Go ahead. There he is. Of course, the impatience is clear. They all leave. And when they're gone, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Daughter, who is left to you? It's so amazing to me that she doesn't say Jesus, even though he's left, right? She must have really gotten him. She says, no one. He says, neither than do I. The sinless one. The sinless one, Jesus. The only one in all of existence who would actually have the right to condemn, to judge. Instead, just forgives. Just like that. It's amazing. God is love. He loves really does exactly. And yet, we must also reckon with the fact that 
is love doesn't leave us where we are. Love changes things. Love changes things. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Above all, love changes us, doesn't it? And this is counterintuitive. I mean, wouldn't we think it would be punishment that changes us? Or harsh rebuke that changes us? Or at the very least, the withdrawal of love for a time that changes us. Yet paradoxically, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Bree and I have uh, two sets of married friends. Not the only two sets of married friends we have. All y'all, all y'all are our sets of married friends. But they're the two that I'm thinking of for this illustration, okay? <laughs> uh, because they're very similar in their struggles, uh, mainly because the husbands in the marriage are almost identical in their personalities. They're not abusive by any means, but they're not exactly the nicest guys either, <laughs> you know, being real. And it's been interesting to observe over the years because we've watched these two marriages unfold as one wife is, is more or less, and understandably so, withdrawn within the marriage. She's, she's just distanced herself. It's, it's very hard. While the other wife, by amazing grace, has somehow pressed in in love. Now I'm guessing I, I probably don't have to tell you which marriage has experienced the greater transformation to us. That's right, it's the one who pressed in. So it is with us and God. Those of us who know Jesus, we know by experience the transformative power of his love. Think about your own conversion. Was it not the deepest revelation of your own sin that you actually deserve judgment but coupled with the most powerful experience of God's love for you right there in the, that place, those two things together that changed everything, right? I've told you a million times, that's how it was for me. I got saved during a sermon on Romans 5, 8. It says God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it was for the Apostle John who wrote this letter that we're studying here this morning. In the gospel account of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, leading up to his crucifixion, we're told that one of Jesus' disciples fled the scene. He ran away, naked. <laughs> that was John. I don't know if you know that, but that was John. Yeah. Now, you know, I was wondering what he was doing without his clothes on. I'm like, did the guards just show up unexpectedly while he was using the bathroom? Or was he just a hot sleeper? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. <laughs> but, but one thing is for sure that must have been John's worst moment his moment of greatest shame and embarrassment I mean here he is one of two disciples along with his brother James whom Jesus is affectionately nicknamed the sons of thunder for their intense personalities and their bravado I mean these were men's men Luke tells us that it was John and James who wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village when they rejected Jesus. And here he is in his first moment of testing, his first moment of real adversity, of, of real persecution. And what does he do? He runs away like a coward. 
naked. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty sure Peter would have never let him live that one down if it hadn't been for Peter's own denial of Christ only a few moments later. Right? And yet I'm convinced that it was this moment, John's worst failure, that was what eventually led to his greatest transformation. I want you to imagine this for yourself right now. I want you to call to mind whatever it is you would deem to be your worst mistake, your worst failure, your worst shortcoming. Maybe of all time, maybe just this past week, whatever comes to mind for you right now. Can you see it? Can you remember how you felt? Crushed, demoralized, maybe apathetic, whatever that may be, just move on to. I want you to imagine it right there in that place, feeling the way that you do, so ashamed. In the providence of God, somehow you're given a front row seat to watch your best friend, Jesus, whom you know to be sinless, whom you know to be the Messiah, whom you've watched perform miracle after miracle with your very own eyes, even raised men from the dead. Worst lashing you've ever seen in your life. Roman soldiers thrashing his body with a cat of nine tails, pieces of metal, bone, and glass ripping his flesh from his body in huge chunks at a time until you can barely even recognize him. You're in shock as you continue to watch as they take nails the size of railroad spikes and drive them through his wrists and his feet, stretching him out so that he cannot until you watch him breathe his last. This was all for you. This was all for your forgiveness. Sinless for the sinner. You know, I'm convinced that it was the love of Jesus right there on the heels of John's worst failure those two things together formed a synergy as John watched Jesus suffer from the foot of the cross as Jesus gave, graciously gave John charge over his own mother as Jesus gently restored John following the resurrection it changed John from a son of thunder to the apostle of love which is how he's known isn't that amazing for it's always you can see just how great a sinner we really are. That we come to truly see how great a Savior we really have in Jesus' name. And as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, we are changed by this. Changed by that dynamic. More into the image of the God who we have been made as we behold His glory. You see, we don't have to imagine that. God's desire is that each one of us would see his love for us shed abroad on the cross with the eyes of faith every time we sin. Every single time. No matter how many times it takes for us to get it. For us to grow. For us to be transformed by it. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus' love for us is the power of God and salvation not only from the punishment for sin, 
but also from the power of sin at work in our lives right now. It's His love that transforms us. Nothing less, nothing more. Transformation has always been the Make no mistake about it. But not transformation for transformation. <laughs> Not transformation for transformation's sake, y'all. Like, God was just up there bored one day. It's like, oh, I guess I'll do some spring cleaning, clean these people up. No, it was transformation is the practical outworking of our salvation because we were created for a love relationship with a God who is holy. Think of, of holiness as the language of heaven, the language of God. God has a vested interest in teaching us to speak his not for his sake, I mean, he doesn't need anything, but for our sake. It's for us, because God's love, it cannot go unrequited. If it's to have its full effect in our lives, it must be reciprocated. God loves you back. This is why, following Peter's denial of Christ, when Jesus meets him again, his question to Peter is, Peter, you know I love you, right? It's Peter. This is how John reveals to us that God's love is to be made complete or perfected in us as we respond to His love by loving Him back. In 1 9, he says that God's love is perfected in us as we confess our sin to Him. Not once, but continually, a lifestyle of confession. So it is with the rest of the list. 2 5. He says that God's love is brought to completion in us as we obey His word. In 3.6, he says that God's love is made perfect in us as we repent from sin. And in 4.12, he says that God's love is brought to full effect in our lives as we love one another. And here, in verses 17 and 18, he tells us that the end of all of this, the result in the end of God's love being made perfect in that we are able to face the day of judgment without fear because we've become confident of just how much he truly loves us. Paul McCartney, the famous Beatles singer, once said, in the end, love you take can only be equal to the love that you make. But he got it backwards, right? He did, because none of us has love in our own strength. None of us has real love in and of ourselves. At best, we might be able to do some act of kindness or service, but only because it benefits us. None of us naturally possesses the kind of love that would be consumed for another's sake, the kind of love that would pray for one's enemies and bless those who persecute them, the kind of love that would become obedient even unto death on a cross. No, that kind of love see in the end, the love that you make, that you give, can only be equal to the love that you take, that you first receive from above, from God, who is Love changes things. So love, says John, so love. We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen can't love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's big idea in writing this letter, his main intent, was to reassure his people of two primary things. First of all, that God is who he says he is. That he is who he has revealed himself to be through his mighty works in history, all throughout the scriptures, through the person and work of his son and in their lives. And secondly, that they belong. That they truly are his people, his children. And he says that the objective proof, the proof that God is who he says he is, that he is love, is the cross. Hammered smack dab in the middle of human history so that no one can miss it. Never forget it. While he says the objective proof of our love for God that we truly belong to him is our love for one another. It's the way that we love each other. Remember though, this is love. Not that we love God, that he loved us. In other words, as we've already discussed, it's God who defines love. We don't get to. God has defined love by the life, death, resurrection of the Son. Love is cross-shaped. Not the pretty one hanging from your neck, the bloody one from which he hangs. You want to know if you belong to God? Do away with your worst fear. And love. Love. Love like Jesus loves you, sacrificially, with no thought to self, with a willingness to lay down your life for your friends. You know, one of the most low-hanging kind of uh, examples of this, opportunities for this, is marriage. For those of you who are married, isn't it so tempting to, to just tap out, right, or at least withdraw when things get hard, when things get tough? our sin or our spouse's sin is exposed. It is, isn't it? But it's right there. It's right there in that place that we are being challenged to truly love. See, love isn't defined by the easy moments. That's right, amen. It's defined by the hardest moments. And it is right there in that place that we will find that love, to love, is at times excruciating. Exclusive from the cross. But even 